It's great to be here tonight with you guys. We're enjoying some great rain here clattering on the roof right now and uh, just a great reminder of how God continues to provide for the needs of creation broadly and of course He provides for all of our needs as His creatures, as those who have been created in His image. I'm so excited to be here tonight to just get to open up God's Word together, to think about um, everything that we've been studying up to this point in the book of James, reaching really a culmination here at the end of chapter 2. And if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be resuming our study in James chapter 2. And for the sake of context, as we prepare to study the verses that we're going to be looking into tonight, I want to read verse 21 to verse 24 for our scripture reading. But um, as you guys know from our last time in the book of James, we studied specifically verse 21, so uh, we're going to read that just to remind us of the flow of James's thought and the context of this passage, and then tonight we're going to be focusing primarily on what James writes in verses 22, 23, and 24. So um, go ahead and flip open your Bible, scroll in your phone, do whatever you need to do to get to James chapter 2, and beginning in verse 21. As usual, I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible but you follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read together. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. James writes the following, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truth upon our hearts this evening. During my time as a student in elementary school, middle school, high school, and even college, I was never a big fan of math. Perhaps some of you in here can relate to that. In fact, math always seemed to give me the greatest struggle in comparison to every class that I was able to take. I mean, from the earliest age, don't get me wrong, I made good grades in all of my classes by God's grace, but math was just hard. I didn't like math. Um, I can't stress enough how happy I was when I successfully completed my college algebra course at Western Texas College in the fall semester of 2014. Uh, It it pretty much, uh, for all intents and purposes, rendered the absolute completion of dealing with numbers and mathematical equations for the rest of my life. It was really cause for celebration for a guy like me. But little did I know that within just a few years' time, I would come into contact with another set of equations that are of an eternal significance. Although these equations had nothing to do with mathematics, my friends, they are of fundamental importance to accurately understand with regard to the realm of one's spirituality. Those equations that I'm referring to are none other than the distinction between a biblical and unbiblical understanding of how a sinner can possess a right understanding and ultimately a right relationship with the trying God. That understanding specifically being how sinful man can have a personal saving relationship 
with his holy creator. Bet you didn't know that math had anything to do with theology. Well, stay with me. I think you're going to be intrigued uh, in just a few moments as we look at uh, these really important equations here. These equations, in fact, go back some 500 years. Over the past 500 years, it has been rightly said by Protestants that the central difference between the biblical gospel and all variations of false gospels ultimately come down to the location of a plus sign and an equal sign. That's really what distinguishes Protestant Christianity from every other religion in the world. It's ultimately this. Where do you put a plus sign and where do you put an equal sign in an equation? Who would have thought? Although the original focus of Protestants was their efforts to refute the Roman Catholic understanding of the doctrine of justification, make no mistake about it, what I'm about to share with you, these equations that we're about to look at together, pertain to every single religion in terms of how a sinner can be made right with holy God or a plurality of deities, depending on what religion you might be looking into. I want you to take note of the top of your handouts at this time, if you haven't done so already. It's where you're going to find those two equations I've been referencing to at this point. Notice those two equations that differentiate how the Bible teaches that a sinner can be made right with God, and on the other hand, how non-biblical religions and philosophies of this world teach that sinful man can be right or have a saving relationship with holy, transcendent God. You'll notice that the biblical equation for how a sinner can be justified, for how a sinner can be declared legally righteous and forgiven in the sight of God, is this. Faith equals justification plus works. That's the biblical equation for the Gospel. Faith equals justification plus works. What does that mean? Well, it means that sinners are legally declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that faith will evidence itself through works of obedience. According to this equation, works are simply the fruit and evidence of saving faith. Works are the ultimate byproduct of a sinner being justified by God. Although works are the necessary consequence of saving faith, according to this equation, don't miss this. This is essential to Protestant Christianity. This is essential to you being a member of a Baptist church. Although works are the necessary consequences of saving faith, works are fundamentally distinct from saving faith. Works play no role in the salvation or in the justification, in the legal declaration of a sinner being righteous in the sight of the living holy God. Works have no basis in the act of salvation, the act of justification of a sinner. That is crucial to understand if you're going to understand the biblical gospel and why we are Protestants by nature. Now, this biblical equation... That biblical equation, faith equals justification plus works, that equation stands in stark contrast to the unbiblical equation for how non-Christian religions teach that a sinful person can receive salvation from God. Notice that second equation included at the top of page 1 in your handouts. You'll notice it right there. Faith plus works equal justification. Did you see what we did there? We flip-flopped the equal sign and the plus sign, right? 
That is every religion in the world that tries to teach how sinful man can be made right with the holy God or the plurality of gods at its most basic fundamental level. Faith plus works equal justification. If you get that, you will go very, very far in your evangelistic and apologetical endeavors. Now what's wrong with this equation? What's the big deal? I mean, all we did was flip-flop a plus sign and equal sign, right? Well, according to this unbiblical equation, my friends, faith and works are cooperating instruments. They are cooperating means through which a sinner is legally declared righteous and forgiven by God. Faith and works in this scheme are co-equal. They are coordinate in the act of a sinner being made right with God, having a personal saving relationship with God or God's plural, depending on what religion you want to talk about here. Now, in the final analysis, this equation, this unbiblical equation, is the embodiment of what the Apostle Paul condemns in Galatians 1, verses 6-9. through In that text, Paul is addressing how the first century Christians in Galatia were starting to believe the false teaching that was being espoused by the Judaizers. Does anybody here remember who the Judaizers were? Based on a show of hands, Sunday school class? I know you've slept a few times since then. Let me just remind that for you. Uh, remind you that uh, tonight, just since I didn't see any hands go up. Um, the Judaizers were a group of false teachers that taught that salvation was obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, we've got to believe in Jesus, said the Judaizers. But also, there was a need for implementing certain aspects of Old Covenant Judaism into faith in Christ. It was salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, said the Judaizers, plus circumcision, plus observing dietary law, plus observing certain calendar days and Jewish customs, plus any number of additional works-related supplements. They certainly would have said, yeah, we love Jesus, we need Jesus. But we also got to do some other things to be made right with God. That might not seem like that big of a deal for you, my friends, but rest assured by the authority of the Word of God, that is a fundamental and eternally damnable mistake that these false teachers were espousing. I want you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. I know this is a little bit of a lengthy introduction, but I hope you'll see the reason for belaboring these points as we dive into our text tonight. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, is the key text that I'm making reference to regarding Paul's critique of the Judaizers espousing of a false gospel. And really the broader application that we can take as Christians from Galatians 1 in this particular passage, we can apply it to every world religion, every secular man-made philosophy that exists in the world. Any self-help plan of how man can achieve nirvana or relationship with the plurality of gods, or maybe just one god if you're a Jew or a Muslim. This passage has direct application to all of those religions under the sun. All of those false religions of the world. Notice what Paul says. This is why those equations matter. Verse 6. Paul says that I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him 
who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That word accursed. He is to be damned. He is to be under the wrath of God. Verse 9, As we have said before, even now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. When considering these strong words of rebuke from the New Testament against works-based understandings of salvation, we fundamentally come to the conclusion that it is vitally important for us to understand and safeguard the biblical equation of the Gospel. Faith equals justification plus works. Write it on the doorpost of your bedroom or of your house. Put it on the screen of your phone. Do whatever it takes to memorize the biblical Gospel the truth of how sinful man can be made right with holy God. And as we now begin to prepare to make our way through the final verses of James's second chapter passage, dealing with the relationship of good works in the Christian life, my prayer is that we won't lose sight of this reality as we get into the weeds of how James wraps up his discussion of the example of Abraham. And there's your introduction, my friends. Thank you for staying with me. By way of review, before we dive into the verses we're going to be covering tonight, it's important that we, again, go over the context of where we've been over the last several weeks. We're nearing the end of the fifth observable section contained within the book of James. And as you'll recall from those previous studies, the book of James, the purpose for which it was written, was so that Christians could have an instruction manual or a roadmap for their spiritual pilgrimage. That's the big picture of the book of James. When considered as a whole, the central theme of the book of James could be summarized in this way. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. It's a roadmap or an instruction manual for how you can put your faith on display before watching world. As we've discussed over the past five lessons, James uses this section of his letter, that fifth section, to call his readers to the task of self-examination. From verse 14 to verse 26 of chapter 2, we see James emphasizing that there are three basic classifications of faith that will be exhibited in the lives of every person who has been exposed to God's special revelation. According to James... Every person who has ever been confronted with the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ will inevitably, uh, they will inevitably model one of three classifications of faith that are characterized in this portion of his letter. What are those three classifications of faith? Well, they're simply this a dead faith, as outlined in verses 14 to 17, that's one possible classification somebody can model in light of being confronted with the gospel. Second possible classification would be a demonic faith. We discussed that as we saw described by James back in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. Or they could possess a genuine faith, a disciple's faith. And that's what we've been looking at starting with verse 20. And uh, we'll wrap that up next week, Lord willing, through verse 26 as we bring the second chapter of the book of James to a conclusion. Now, just by way of review... 
During our study of verses 14 to 17, we saw James' description, illustration, and assessment of a dead faith. Upon doing so, we ultimately learn that it is both useless and absurd for anybody to say they have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and not demonstrate any external evidence of that faith. These biblical and theologically derived principles really set the table for us to unpack James's discussion on a demonic faith as described in verses 18 and 19. It's a very convicting array of verses. We saw emphasized by James in verse 18 and 19 that any self-identification with the Christian faith that does not stem from a heart that is born again is worthless and meaningless in the sight of God. That is so crucial to understand. Christianity is so much more than a list of do's and don'ts. It's an expression of a renewed heart in worship to the living God that puts God on display in every facet of one's life. It doesn't matter how sound your doctrine might be. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized, if you take of the Lord's Supper, if you're a good standing member in the local church. It doesn't matter if you're involved in Christian ministry activities. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a deacon or an elder or on a committee. It doesn't matter if you give money for the advancement of Christian causes. As good as all of those things are... According to James, and according to the comprehensive teaching of sacred Scripture, all external Christian acts are worthless and meaningless in the sight of God if they do not stem from a heart that loves God and desires to honor Him. And that is sobering instruction for us to think about. Why do you think works-based salvation appeals to so many people in the world? We think we can do it ourselves, right? We think we're not that bad, that we can do these things to make ourselves appealing to God. But the the fact of the matter is, my friends, we fall so, so short of God's standard. Those are some key pieces of instruction that pave the way for James to transition from verses 14 to 19 of chapter 2 into the section that we've been covering over the past several weeks. And Lord willing, like I said earlier, we'll bring it to a conclusion next week. As we just stated by way of review, that third classification of faith, beginning in verse 20, extending on to verse 26, we've effectively summarized that particular section, that section within the fifth observable section in the book of James, in this way. Notice that label in your handouts. A disciple's faith. A disciple's faith describes the classification of faith that James unpacks from verse 20 to verse 26 of chapter 2. We began our study of a disciple's faith by surveying James's emphatic assertion contained in verse 20, and over the past two lessons covering verse 21, we considered the example of Abraham. The example of Abraham part 1 and part 2. As I discussed during our previous lesson, Verses 22 to 24 function as supplemental commentary to what James has already articulated for us in verses 20 and 21. We're not going to necessarily see anything new from James in verses 22 to 24. Rather, he's going to unpack what he's already said in the two preceding verses regarding the faith of a disciple. He's going to provide us with additional theological and practical insight building off of the argument he's already laid before us in verse 20 and 21. So tonight's lesson, it's going to be our third and final consideration of the example of Abraham. 
And we're going to consider the example of Abraham part 3 under two key subheadings. And again, I would call your attention to those in your handouts. Two central, two key subheadings that are going to structure and organize where we're going over the rest of this lesson. The first subheading is directly associated with what James writes in verse 22. During our analysis of that verse, we're going to observe the example of Abraham clarified. The example of Abraham clarified in verse 22. Like a good Baptist, you've got to keep everything consistent here. And second, in verses 23 to 24, we're going to uh, to consider the example of Abraham concluded. Example of Abraham clarified in verse 22, verses 23 and 24, the example of Abraham concluded. So with that outline in mind, let's begin our exegesis of verse 22 as we turn our attention to the example of Abraham clarified by James. And notice again what he writes for us and for those first century Jewish Christians who originally received this letter in the 40s A.D. Notice this, verse 22. James writes, You see that faith was working with Abraham's works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Now at the outset of examining verse 22, it's important for us to review what we learned about how the Bible characterizes saving faith. What is the nature, what are the characteristics of genuine saving faith. There were three of them. Can anybody recall those? Three Latin terms, but you can use the English if it's easier for you. You'll notice them in your handouts as well. But what, what do you got to have to be saved? What are your characteristics that are going to be apparent? Ellen. Fiducia. Very good. All right, so let's go over these again. Faith equals justification plus works. That's the biblical gospel. Well, what is faith? Well, this is just as important to commit to memory as that equation. Notitia, characteristic number one. Every true Christian will have notitia. Now, what is notitia? Notitia is a Latin word for understanding or knowledge. Every true Christian will have an accurate understanding of of the gospel. They will have been confronted with the true biblical gospel. It's impossible to be saved if you don't first have exposure to the biblical gospel. You've got to know, at least at some level, that I'm a sinner before a holy God. I have nothing in and of myself that can make myself right with God. God must show mercy and grace to me. And that is most exclusively and manifestly demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross had Notitia, believe it or not. Probably the person who had the least amount of knowledge in all of biblical history in terms of a literally conversion right before he dies. But he knew that he was a sinner. He knew he couldn't do anything to be made right with God. And he knew that Jesus was God's provision of a substitute, of a sacrifice, of a Savior. Characteristic number one of saving faith, you got to have notitia. you got to have accurate understanding of the Gospel. But there's a second characteristic that Ellie reminded us of, and it's a sensus, Latin for a sensus. Think a sensus or assent, intellectual agreement. 
It's one thing to have exposure to the biblical gospel, to have an accurate understanding of the biblical gospel. It's quite another thing to intellectually agree with it. To look at it and say, yeah, I agree with that. The facts make sense. It, 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 it is rational. It's coherent. It's consistent with the testimony of Scripture. But we also know that that's not where saving faith ends because even the demons have no tissue and senses. The demons understand the Gospel. The demons recognize that it's true and they shudder, said James back in verses 18 and 19. Number three, third key characteristic that every Christian will have is fiducia. And that's key. This is what distinguishes the faith from a demon. The faith of those who are false converts or self-deceived from the true believer. Fiducia means to trust. To trust that the Gospel message is applicable and sufficient for me. That's what every true believer will have, my friends. They're going to have accurate understanding. They're going to have intellectual agreement. And they're going to say... I trust that that message is perfectly adequate and sufficient for me to be saved. It's not just head knowledge. It's personal. And you embrace that by faith. Now, during our examination of verses 20 and 21, we discovered that the external evidence of a person having come to saving faith is a lifestyle pattern of obedience to the commands of Scripture. Said differently, obedience will naturally and organically flow from a heart that comes to embrace the Gospel message by faith alone. If you've got notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, you are going to show that forth in a lifestyle pattern of good works, of heartfelt obedience to the Most High. In the case of the example of Abraham, the external evidence that he had notitia, ascensus, and fiducia Knowledge, intellectual assent, and personal trust was observed in this key way. Notice what James writes in the rest of verse 22. He says, faith was working with his works. Faith was working with Abraham's works. My friends, the testimony of Scripture is that every person who has ever been saved or ever will be saved will manifest a lifestyle pattern marked by good works. Good works always accompanies. It always works together with true saving faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. If I can make it real simple for you. Something you can memorize maybe easy. Faith in Jesus Christ is the root of the Christian life. And works of obedience to God's commands are the fruit that springs forth from that root of faith. Faith in Christ is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Obedience is not faith. Works is not faith. It is the necessary and organic overflow or consequence of faith. In the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, we're going to consider two passages that further emphasize this principle. In the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us a powerful lesson on the relationship between coming to saving faith in Christ and the fruit that will necessarily be produced in the lives of His people. Flip over with me. John chapter 15 in verses 4 and 5. This is in the upper room discourse. Christ is hours away from being betrayed and handed over to the Jewish religious officials and the Romans to eventually be crucified. But He encourages His 
11 remaining disciples in the upper room with these words. And they are applicable for us as well, roughly 2,000 years later. Notice what Christ says. He says, Remain in Me, and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in Me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for apart from Me, you can do nothing. My friends, do you see the inextricable relationship between our union with Christ by faith, our remaining in Christ by faith, and the fruit of obedience that will be born in our lives? Do you see that there in that passage? The fruit that we bear in the Christian life is not something that we just muster up in and of ourselves. Our obedience to the instruction contained in Scripture is not accomplished solely as a result of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Christ completely rejects that notion when He says, apart from Me, you can't do anything. He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. My friends, if you're trying to live the Christian life simply as a list of do's and don'ts, simply as, a, as, a, as some desire or motivation to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you miss the Gospel. The Gospel isn't do certain things so that I can be acceptable before God and live how I am supposed to live. No, the Gospel is come to the Lord Jesus Christ may he, and in doing so, may He transform me from the inside out so I can now live out the way that I have been called to live. It's not something that we do solely in and of ourselves, my friends, but rather it's something that Christ does in us and through us for His good pleasure. And that brings us to the second key passage that I want us to consider as we reflect on the relationship between saving faith and good works. Turn with me now. We're going to remain in the New Testament. Turn with me now to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Very familiar set of verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Now this passage, we're going to see a very similar principle taught by the Apostle Paul that we just saw affirmed by our Lord in John 15. We're going to discover that the production of good works, the fruit of faith, is ultimately dependent upon a sinner having first come to Christ. It's not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's coming to Christ so that He can make us into the man or woman we've been called to be, and that the overflow effect of that is a lifestyle pattern of obedience and submission to His authority. Listen to these verses, verses 8-10 through 10 of Ephesians 2. drives this point home quite wonderfully. Paul writes the following. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast... For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now did you catch the logical progression that Paul set before us in those verses? God's grace is the ultimate reason why any sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They don't just wake up one day and figure it out and say, you know what, today I'm coming to Jesus. God does a sovereign work of regeneration in the heart of a spiritually dead sinner 
gives them the gifts of faith and repentance and salvation, and they respond. And then God begins to renew them from the inside out, making them into a new creature and conforming them into the likeness and moral character of Jesus Christ. As Paul says just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 2, sinners are spiritually dead by their own nature, and as a result, they are utterly incapable of coming to a relationship with God if left to themselves. So in order to overcome man's spiritual deadness, God supernaturally intervenes, And what is the overflow effect of that? Well, He gives them exactly what they don't deserve to receive. He gives them grace, and He transforms their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And guess what happens, my friends? The works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in take place. Did you catch that? We were created, verse 10, we were created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So not only is our salvation dependent upon God's grace, not only is our faith in Jesus Christ a gift of God's grace, but my friends, even the good works we produce as Christians are dependent upon the grace of Almighty God. It's grace upon grace upon grace from start to finish. God's grace superabounds to those whom He has set His redeeming love upon. And according to Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the good works that we produce in the Christian life are the gracious gifts of God allowing us to put Him on display in lifestyle patterns of obedience. The good works that we produce in the Christian life are the result of God's work in us and after after saving us through us. God's work that He begins in us at salvation is progressively brought to completion through sanctification until our glorification on the day of Christ's return or our earthly death. So, what's the takeaway here from John 15 and Ephesians 2? Simply this, my friends. Our good works do not earn our salvation, nor do our good works cause us to come to the point of trusting in Jesus Christ. Rather, Our good works flow from the faith and salvation that God has so graciously gifted to those of us who have believed. For the Christian, our saving faith, like it did with Abraham, our saving faith works together with our works, resulting in our faith being, here it is back from James 2.22, perfected. Notice that little word right there at the end of verse 22. James, he says, as a result of Abraham's works, faith, here it is, was perfected. Now, what does he mean by that? What does it mean for faith to be perfected? I thought that nobody was perfect on this side of heaven, right? Well, listen to what James is doing here. It's very fascinating. The same Greek term that he uses for perfected was used back in verse 4 of chapter 1. It's a term that means to be brought to maturity. In the context of James chapter 1 and verse 4, this term was used to describe how God's testing of our faith through trials is one of the means that He uses to mature us in our faith. In other words, trials perfect us insofar that they are a means God uses to further conform us into the moral likeness of Jesus Christ. 
Trials are a divine means of facilitating the sanctification of the believer as they advance through the Christian life on this side of heaven. In a similar way, God uses our good works as a means of bringing our faith into greater degrees of maturity. Just like trials are a means that God uses to mature us in our faith, so also do our lifestyle patterns of good works mature our faith, bringing it to further degrees of maturity as we resist the temptations of the flesh and of the world and of the devil and submit ourselves in obedience by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to the commands of God in Scripture. I really like how Douglas Moo describes this reality in his commentary on the book of James. You'll notice that quote in your handouts. It's a really good quote to meditate on. I'd encourage you to do so after the lesson. But notice how Moo describes how God uses good works in the Christian life as a means of bringing the Christian's faith into greater degrees of maturity. Moose says that just as the perfect Christian is produced through the faithful endurance of trials, so also perfect faith is through successive acts of obedience. Abraham's faith was strengthened, matured, and deepened by the successive trials through which he was called to go. According to James, Moo continues, works are the necessary, inevitable product of true saving faith. And hence, they bring faith itself to maturity. If I swing a sledgehammer in an arc that moves through a glass table, the necessary outcome is a shattered glass table. The shattering itself is not the swing of the sledgehammer, but it is the inevitable result In a similar manner, faith is the decisive action that leads to our justification. But that action leaves evidence of its occurring. That evidence of justification through faith alone is works. And Moo concludes by saying this, Faith must not be confused with works, but neither can faith be separated from the production of works. End quote. This is the example of Abraham clarified. Verse 22 provides us with plenty of supplemental commentary to enable us to further understand the relationship between saving faith and good works. But that's not all that James has to say in regard to the example of Abraham. As we can clearly see from verses 23 and 24, James isn't finished explaining to his first century Jewish readers about how the life of Abraham demonstrates the link between saving faith and obedience to the Word of God. That takes us to the second and final subheading that we're going to consider during our time together tonight. Notice the example of Abraham concluded in verses 23 and 24. The example of Abraham concluded in verses 23 and 24. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James says, And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, in order for us to understand this aspect of James's usage of the example of Abraham here in verses 23 and 24, we're going to have to address at least three intertextual observations. 
three intertextual observations from verses 23 and 24 to get the full grasp of what James is going for here regarding the example of Abraham. First, in order to understand the big picture of what James is saying, especially in verse 24, we're going to need to revisit what he, had, uh, what he discussed back in verse 21. We're going to need to remind ourselves of how James is using the term justified in this context. Second, we're going to have to define the term fulfilled in verse 23. And third, we're going to have to take note of how the Old Testament citation recorded in verse 23 fits into this particular section of James's argument. These are going to be the three key intertextual observations that we need to make, at the very least, to get a sense of what James wants us to take away from these two verses. Well, as you'll recall from our study of verse 21, the Greek term that James uses for justified has a twofold meaning throughout Scripture. The term can either refer to a person being legally declared as righteous in the sight of God, that specifically pertains to the equation that we discussed during the introduction of tonight's lesson. The term justified can either pertain to legal declaration of righteous in the sight of God, or it can refer to a person being vindicated and proven to be righteous in the sight of man. And that's what James is going for here in chapter 2. He's using the term justified in order to demonstrate authenticity or vindication in the sight of man. So in verse 24, when James says that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's saying that a man is vindicated. A man is proven to be righteous in the sight of man by his works of obedience. The works of obedience prove that that person is a believer. Or in the case of Abraham, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac at Mount Moriah was the vindication that his faith was authentic. I mean, this fits in perfectly with everything that James has already been saying up to this point in chapter 2. The mere profession of faith, according to James, is meaningless and empty without the lifestyle pattern that bears witness and attests to the authenticity of one's profession of faith. Whereas the absence of a lifestyle pattern of obedience to Scripture proves that a person is not a true Christian, the presence of a lifestyle pattern of obedience to the commands of Scripture proves, validates, authenticates that person is saved. Such a person whose lifestyle is marked by a pattern of obedience to the commands of Scripture in conjunction with their profession of faith in Jesus Christ is proven to be authentic by virtue of their obedience, which is the natural overflow of their genuine profession of faith in Christ. Now, with that being said, by way of clarification, we're now going to transition into the second observation we need to make in light of verses 23 and 24. Notice that second observation in your handouts. We're going to particularly pertain to the word fulfilled. What does James mean when he says that the Scripture was fulfilled? Well, as with most Greek terms, this term can take on a multitude of meanings which largely depend on the context in which the word is being used. When considered in and of itself, if you do a word study on the Greek term that's used here for our English term fulfilled, You can get any of these three connotations. You can get it meaning to be completed. Fulfilled can just mean to be completed. 
It can mean to reach consummation, or it can mean to bring something into realization. It could be any of those three connotations, any of those three meanings. Now, where do I land? Well, I'm not going to pinpoint one of those three. I believe that any of those particular definitions fit into the macro-level argument that James is going for here in verses 23 and 24. How do I arrive at this conclusion? Well, my reasoning is based on what can be observed from James's citation of Genesis 15, 6 in verse 23. And now with that in mind, third key observation that we need to take note of. Third key observation that we need to be aware of as we seek to accurately interpret this portion of James's letter. Genesis 15.6 is the text that James is citing within verse 23. And as we've discussed in previous lessons, in your Bible, you might notice that that quote from Genesis 15.6 is in block letters. Might be in all caps, might be in block letters, might be italicized, might have brackets around it. What do you think that's indicating? Just to see if y'all are paying attention. If you ever see a passage in the New Testament that's italicized or in block letters or in brackets or um, all caps, what does that typically mean? Sorry. It's very important, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's important. It calls our attention to it. Wit? Uh, that it may not be found in the could, could mean that it might not be found in the original manuscript. That's always a possibility as well. What else? What do you think it could mean here? Where's Genesis 15 at in the Bible? What's that? It's in the Old Testament, right? So, one thing... Ellie? There's a later reference in the Old Testament. There's a... Yeah, so um, anytime that you find block letters or... or um, all uppercase letters, italicized brackets, could mean any number of things. But in this context, if you have a New American Standard version of the Bible, um, like I do, it's in all uppercase letters, and there's a little notation there that alerts me that we're dealing with a New Testament citation of an Old Testament passage. So my point, guys, is anytime you see in your Bibles that the font looks different, or there's an asterisk, or if it's in all caps, brackets, whatever... Look at the margins. Look in the footnotes. It's probably going to tell you what's going on there. I just wanted to give you a little um, Bible interpretation piece of advice that I found helpful. And with that in mind, by way of parenthesis, back to the significance of Genesis 15.6. What's the truth that James wants to communicate to his first century readers in this passage? What's the main point he wants them to come away with? Well, here it is. Because Abraham's faith was working with his works as evidenced by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac at the altar at Mount Moriah, the Scripture's declaration contained in Genesis 15.6 was brought to its fullest completion, consummation, and realization. Notice this, my friends. After Abraham defeated the five pagan kings and rescued his nephew from captivity, as recorded in Genesis 14... Genesis 15 tells us that God entered into a covenant with Abraham. In this covenant, God promises Abraham that he will be blessed with land, innumerable offspring, and divine blessing. And in response to those covenant promises made by God, 
Abraham in that moment exercises true saving faith. God declares him as legally righteous in his sight on the basis of faith. In other words, the testimony of Genesis 15.6 is that Abraham took God at his word and believed that God would come to fulfill every divine promise made to him at their appointed time. And upon doing so, Abraham's justified before God. However, and here's how it pertains to tonight's passage. According to James's initial excuse me, according to James's inspired argument in this portion of his letter, it was not until Abraham passed God's test of being willing to sacrifice Isaac at the altar that the truth contained in Genesis 15:6 reached its ultimate completion, consummation, and realization. What does that mean? It wasn't until Genesis 22 in which Abraham's legal declaration of righteousness in the sight of God could be authentically and consummately proven in the sight of man. Let me say that again. Abraham's legally declared righteous in the sight of God in Genesis 15.6, but it's not until Genesis 22 in which that legal declaration of righteousness, in which Abraham's faith was evidenced consummately and totally, completely in the sight of man. It was in Genesis 22 when Abraham's faith was authenticated and proven as genuine in the sight of his fellow men. It wasn't just a profession of faith. His act of obedience validated him in the sight of others. Is this not consistent with what we just learned from what James argued back in verse 22? Just as our faith is brought to maturity through our acts of obedience to God, so also was Abraham's faith brought to obedience through his willingness to obey God at any cost, even the cost of sacrificing his own dear son. Abraham's faith was brought to maturity through his vindication in the sight of man, through his obedience to God's commandments flowing from the root of his faith in God. And what was the end result of Abraham's obedience? What was the consequence regarding Abraham in the sight of fellow man? Notice this, my friends. Abraham was called the friend of God. Think about that. Because Abraham demonstrated true saving faith through his willingness to obey God, because Abraham was vindicated and his faith was proven as authentic in the sight of man through his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, there are multiple citations throughout Old Testament history where Abraham is called the friend of God. Abraham was regarded as the real deal because his lifestyle matched his profession. He wasn't a perfect man, but he did model obedience in his life. And for every true believer, obedience will be observable in their life. I want to close by asking you if people would say that you're a friend of God. The people who know you best. Could that be said of you? Are you regarded in the sight of fellow man as a friend of God? That your faith is vindicated and proven as authentic through how you live your life?
the answer to that question is yes. Praise the Lord. Press on. Continue to live out your faith before a watching world, being devoted to sharing the Gospel through your words, through living out the Gospel, through obedience to God's commandments, to showing that your faith is genuine. But if, if you're not sure, or maybe you know tonight that you've never even trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you know that the people who know you best would say, you know, I mean, I really don't know how they are with God. They, they either never talk about God or their lifestyle looks just like the rest of the world. That could be you tonight. And if that's the case, I just want to plead with you tonight. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your rebellion to God. Surrender your life to His Lordship. Receive the forgiveness of sins that He alone can provide. And in doing so, your life will be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. He will make you a new creature. He will give you a new heart, new affections, new desires, new motives. And slowly but surely, you will be conformed into His likeness. Your faith will be matured. That would be my plea to you tonight. If you're not the friend of God, if your lifestyle does not match your profession, again, nobody's perfect. James certainly wasn't arguing for sinless perfection at any point as we've developed this part of chapter 2. But know this, my friends, every true believer will look marked differently from the world and their lifestyle will spring forth from a heart that loves God and seeks to honor Him as the Most High. My prayer is that every person here tonight, that at the time of our earthly deaths or at the moment of Jesus Christ's return, whenever that may be, whichever one of those realities happens first, my prayer is that each and every one of us could be said that we were the friends of God, adopted children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that faith vindicated and proven as authentic before a watching world. And it's with that in mind that we're now going to transition into our season of group discussion. We seek to wrap up tonight's youth gathering. Notice the discussion questions that are contained in the bottom, uh, that contained at the bottom of page two in your handouts. There should be four. Question one says this. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Question one. When thinking about the doctrine of justification, why do you think it's so important to distinguish between faith and works? What do we risk losing by failing to make this crucial distinction? It's a very important question. Hannah. Right. Like, that's just fundamentally, that's how we are. Right. So, it's very important to understand that works will never earn us salvation. That's exactly right. We don't have salvation if we believe that, because we're never going to get there. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's perfect. Um, what you lose, you intermingle faith and works in any way, you lose the gospel. Obedience is not faith, obedience works. It's not the same thing. Faith is the root, and obedience, works are the fruit, the evidence, the consequences. 
if we intermingle faith and works in any way, we become a false religion. We become like the Judaizers. We become like Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Jews. Um, whatever false, untrue religion exists out there that stresses a combination of God's grace or God helping man out and man doing everything in his power to supplement that. My friends, biblical Christianity is this. God does a work of grace in us sinners so that we can believe and so that we can obey. It's not us just deciding one day on a whim, you know, you know this, this Christianity stuff sounds pretty good, I think I'm going to give it a shot. That's not what happens. God gifts the spiritually dead sinner with the gift of faith, the gift of salvation, and even the good works that bear witness to that faith. Philippians 2.13 is a great passage to go to. Verse 12, it ends by saying, Work out your fear, or excuse me, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for your for his good pleasure. So when you're when you're performing the good works that God has given you beforehand to walk in, you're ultimately fulfilling those works by the grace of God, and in doing so. He's rewarding you for works that He is equipping you and enabling you to perform. Even your obedience is an act of God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And that's why it's so crucial to distinguish between faith and works. Although they are two sides of the same coin, they must be distinguished from one another. I love how Moo put that in that quote earlier in the lesson. Well, number two. Second discussion question. How does God's sovereignty over our good works impact your thinking about the Christian's responsibility to be obedient to Scripture's commands? In other words, is the sovereignty of God an excuse for us to be lazy in the Christian life or negligent towards good works? Hey, you know, here's, here, here could be the argument. You know, God, yeah, so you say that God predestines who's going to be saved, and you say that God gives faith, and that God even predestines the works that you're going to walk in? That, why would you tell anybody that? I mean, that, that, that doesn't even make sense. How would you respond to that? Because that's exactly what Paul does, does he not? Chapter 1 of Ephesians, God works all things after the counsel of His own will, Ephesians 1.11 Verses 3 to 11 talks about God predestining believers to salvation. Ephesians 2, sinners are spiritually dead, so they can't even seek after God. They won't seek after God, as said in Romans 3 and Romans 8, 7. So, what's the point? If God's sovereign, I'll just let go and let God, and I'm never going to do anything on my power. It doesn't matter how I live, God's going to do all the work for me. How do you respond to that? Sai. Wouldn't be true faith. What do you mean by that? Elaborate. That's a good thought. Like, um, the way you put it is to be a lazy Christian. Um, be lazy is to neglect, to neglect your faith. Mm. If you neglect your faith, then you can't truly be saved because then to neglect it is not stay true to that faith. Mm-hmm. And not staying true to that faith would probably put you under a category of what's that one 
I'm not sure I follow you, but I appreciate you for sharing the thought. Uh, Ken. That means like, we're saying like, I don't have to do anything, I'll do it later or something. It's a good thought. Any, any, other, any other thoughts on that? Let me ask you this. Do we know what God has predestined? No, we don't, right? What, what do we know really about the future? We don't know anything, right? But what do we know for a fact that we have in the present? What can we say that we know? We have responsibility as believers. We have commands in Scripture that we are to follow after and obey. Now, I'm not sure how it all works out between God predestining everything that comes to pass and my responsibility in it, but I do know I have full responsibility for my actions and will be judged as such. And yet everything that I do in the Christian life is God who is at work in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And that the good works that I do were prepared beforehand so that I might walk in them. That's a mystery that we can't fully wrap our heads around. So let me tell you this much. Here's a great place to go to regarding this question. Romans 6 is such an important chapter in Scripture. Because Romans 6, Paul is addressing objections. He's just laid out the Gospel in a, verse, or excuse me, in a chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Paul lays out the Gospel. Sinners are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And you know what, the, you know what he does as a master teacher? Paul anticipates objections. Well, if we're not saved by works, then what are we going to do? Should we just sin all the more so that grace may abound? Should we just live however we want to live? And Paul says, may it never be. He uses the strongest negative in the Greek language. He says, absolutely not. In fact, because God has shown grace to you, you have a responsibility to honor Him at every point in your life, and you leave the secret things to the Lord. You focus on what God has revealed to you in His Word, His commanded will. You commit yourself to obeying that, and you leave the secret things in the sovereign, hidden counsel of the Most High. That's how you respond to that. My friends, God's sovereignty in salvation, God's sovereignty in our sanctification, and God's sovereignty in our glorification. God's sovereignty in our salvation from start to finish, and God's sovereignty over redemptive history from eternity past to eternity future does not give you or I the right to be lazy or negligent in what God has commanded us to do in His Word. Full stop, period, paragraph, end of story. We have a responsibility to be faithful to what God's commanded us to do, knowing and trusting that He's got it all figured out. And it's a mystery that causes us to worship and adore the living God, not to try to figure it out or reject it as being true. Now, question three. Question three. To what extent do you agree or disagree with this statement? And here's the statement. We are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. What do y'all like? Do y'all like that or not like it? Wait. I would say that's completely accurate because faith alone is the reason we're saved. But then, if you have faith, so you're no fun. Somebody had to get that wrong. Thanks, Wit. You ruined. You ruined it for. You ruined it for everybody. Uh, no, guys, guys. Another. You want another cool little one-liner that you can memorize and help you in your evangelism, your apologetics. This is another good one. 
We are justified. We are saved. We are legally declared as righteous in the sight of a holy God by faith alone. Of course, in Jesus Christ alone. We are justified by faith alone. But the faith that we have is never alone. It's not easy believism. What is that, what is that word? Remember? It starts with an A. And... Antinomianism. Thank you, Cy. Very good. So, guys... Christianity is not antinomianism. It's not anti-law. It's not anti-obedience. Christianity is grace-fueled obedience. It's God propelling us into obedience by the work of the Holy Spirit that's making us more like Jesus. So, this is a completely accurate statement. We are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It always is accompanied by obedience, by a lifestyle pattern of good works that are in keeping with the commands of Scripture. Does that make sense? Everybody everybody following there? Okay, very briefly, last one. And this one should be very practical compared to the last three. This should, this should get right to the nuts and bolts of your daily Christian life. James, uh, or number four, given James's continual reference to Old Testament figures, stories, and themes... How should our study of the Old Testament be impacted? And I'm preaching to myself with this question. Sorry. Um, if it's continually referenced in the New Testament, I think we should read the Old Testament with as much enthusiasm as the New Testament. That's exactly right. Hannah, were you going to say? <laughs> Basically, not exactly the same thing, but along those lines, like, I think it's really easy to dismiss because there's, there's so many things that it takes more effort to understand in the Old Testament. It's kind of strange. If we're honest, right? It's completely the different. The Old Testament is very straightforward as far as mm-hmm. like, our, our responsibility as believers. But like, like we just learned, like, we need to go back and look. Right. Uh, the same things we're talking about. Ellie. Um, I feel like it, we kind of look over the Old Testament sometimes and I feel like it's just like this is an example of how important the New Testament is and how much we need to um, evaluate as much as we do the New Testament. Absolutely. Right, the New Testament is the continuation and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If we didn't have the Old Testament, the New Testament really wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, there would be obviously like Jesus makes sense regardless. We all know we're sinners. He came as God um, in flesh and bought our redemption through His perfect life, death on the cross, bodily resurrection. We know all that. But a lot of the New Testament presupposes familiarity with the Old Testament, right? Um, If we're honest with ourselves, and Ellie hit the nail on the head, Hannah also alluded to it, the Old Testament can be weird at times. It can be strange. It can be hard to understand. Thousands of years ago, I mean, the New Testament was 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament's three to four thousand years ago that makes it hard in and of itself it's ancient near east customs a lot of things different than what we experience and understand as westerners here in the 21st century it takes effort however despite the effort despite the difficulties that may accompany reading the old testament at times my friends it is so important that we are enthusiastic as i said we need to be enthusiastic about studying the old testament We need to commit ourselves to understanding it. We need to see how the Old Testament points forward to Christ and how it has direct application for the church 
in our day and age. Some Christians say the Old Testament was for Israel. It doesn't really matter to us today. Um, I mean, it's there. There's value in it, of course, but this is the church age. We need to really prioritize the New Testament. And my friends, the Old Testament is just as much for us as Christians in the church age as it was for Israel before the uh, institutionalization of the church at Pentecost, which we're going to talk more about this Sunday in Sunday school. Sai, did you have something to say? I should say, like, the Old Testament is as inspired as the New Testament, along with, like, uh, you know how Proverbs and Psalms... Yeah, it's all inspired. Yeah, they're the three wisest books in the... Yeah, it's called the wisdom literature for a reason, absolutely. And if you rule those out, if you rule the Old Testament out as not as inerrant as the New Testament, you're ruling those books out. Yeah, no, you're 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 lo- you're missing out on a lot. You're losing a lot by not giving careful attention to the Old Testament. Yes, buddy. You know, I never, I never saw that until tonight when you were talking about that Abraham. You know, by going to sacrifice Isaac demonstrated the faith that God had already given to him mm-hmm. to all the people. You know, and, and that's uh, that's his witness to all the people. And, and it showed the desire for the holiness of God. Right. That he, he he desired so much to honor God that he, he was willing to sacrifice his son, Amen. which demonstrated, and it's no different than today, Whenever we're faced with dilemmas, we're faced with conflict. If we don't stand for the truth, mm-hmm. then we demonstrate our weakness in faith by our unwillingness to stand for the truth. There's so many people today say that you know what we're going to love them right where they're at, and righteousness will prevail, and we're going to, you know, I mean, we just need to be unified instead of being willing to stand right. and demonstrate what it is that God has done for you, knowing that He's the one. The same reason that you're still here is because you know that God has called you to be here just like He's called me. You have a purpose. You have something that you have to do. And until the day God says it's done, you're going to do that. Amen. And that demonstrates that faith that God has put in you. I never saw that like that with everyone. I saw it here. I understood what he was saying, but I didn't. I didn't see it like that. There, so I, I put a couple of cross references uh, in somewhere in there. It talks about you know when, when Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah, he had other people accompanying him. Could you imagine the look on their faces before the sacrifice, and then they come down together and they're like, "What is going on? Like, you came like." You were willing to sacrifice your own son, but the, who is this God that He would spare him? You know, like all these thoughts probably were going through their minds. I don't know. I would. I wouldn't have not known what to thought if I was those guys watching. But no, guys, right there. Everything Alan said. Prime example: an Old Testament reality having direct application to Christians here in the Church Age, thousands of years later. Well, my friends. This is a really great time of study tonight. I'm, I'm encouraged by your, your um, attentiveness, your eagerness to talk about the deep truths of God, uh, to share it with others. Let's close our time with a word of prayer, and then you guys will be dismissed. And I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, over the past three lessons, we've had the privilege of seeing how true saving faith was manifested in the life of Abraham. And although he was certainly not a perfect man, 
Father, we know that Abraham was a man who ultimately trusted that you and you alone can enable a sinner to be forgiven and have a personal saving relationship with you for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you for the example that Abraham is for all who come to saving faith. And we thank you for the way that Abraham ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the perfect and eternally sufficient sacrifice for our sins and that through faith in him alone, we are able to find rest for our souls. We thank you for how our faith in Christ has changed our lives for those of us here who are believers and has propelled us into a lifestyle that strives to honor you through our good works, not to earn salvation, not to earn your favor, but just to honor you out of an expression of gratitude for all that you've done for us. Father, we know in and of ourselves that our our good works, our best of deeds are like filthy rags in your sight. So we're just humbled, God, by your grace that you you would receive our, our feeble efforts of worship and obedience as spiritual worship, as a fragrant aroma to you, Lord, because of Christ, because of his righteousness covering our failures and our iniquities. Father, I pray that these glorious truths that we've talked about regarding the faith of Abraham, the example of Abraham would, would just motivate us, Lord, that it would propel us into lives of obedience. And God, that we would be radically transformed even as we walk out these doors tonight. I thank you for these young men and women, for their families, for the work you're doing in them and through them. I pray for your blessings upon them physically and spiritually as they seek to finish this week on a high note. And God, keep us safe as we leave this time of corporate worship and we commit the rest of this night and week to you praying in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit. Amen.